1: is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network.
2: Let's start with the inauguration. i got to tell you, um, I, I watched a lot more of it than I thought. Got home from the studio and, uh, you know, turned the TV on it just, as they were starting to fill up there in front of the Capitol. Uh, and I got hooked on it because, like it or not, you know, the guy who was taken over and... Um, it was a beautiful picture of who we are as a people to see that capital, our nation's capital, and to see the Democratic leaders of Congress, the Republican leaders of Congress, to see President Carter, President George W. Bush, um, President Obama uh, coming coming down to see. Uh, the only one who wasn't there was— um, H.W. H.W. Bush, H. W. right, yeah. W. Bush. To see um, Joe Biden there, to see the members of the Supreme Court, uh, the leaders of our military, the Joint Chiefs. Uh, it, is, it We're reminded, I guess, every four years of who we are as a people, that this peaceful transfer of power, uh, this handing over from one administration to the next, is a historic ceremony. It's as close to kind of royal ritual that we come to, uh, and uh, i, I got to tell you, it made you proud to be an American. If you could just forget who the characters were, <laughs> right, That just seeing that whole ceremony. And the way it was choreographed, I thought, too, was so beautifully handled. You know, everybody, the timing was just perfect. One after the other, they came down. It, it took place right on time. And uh, one nice little bonus is that, as we were hoping would happen, uh, it started raining as soon as Donald Trump started speaking, yeah, <laughs> because the speech, now look, I was, I was figuring out last night, okay? The very first, and I was just a kid. the very first inaugural speech that I remember was John F. Kennedy when he famed because you know he was my hero as a young Catholic, that's the first Catholic running for president. Um, and the person who got me interested in politics interviewed him when I was in high school, uh, at that hearing him say, ask not what your country can do, ask what you can do for your country, a magic moment. And I've seen every inaugural address since then. And without doubt, this was the worst I've ever heard. And I think, I think it's safe to say the worst ever, because it wasn't an inaugural address there was nothing uplifting about it. The inaugural address is usually in people's, you know, they want rhetoric that soars about bringing this country together and the campaign is behind us. And now we're all Americans and we're moving forward together with common goals and and making sure the Constitution is there for everybody. No, that's not what Donald Trump did. It was a campaign speech. He could have given that same speech and did In Des Moines, Iowa, two years ago, when he launched his campaign, it was all about division. It was all about what horrible shape America is in. I mean, this is an America, I don't even recognize Donald Trump's description of America. Here he is talking about, again, we've heard this during the campaign so many times, what what horrible shape the inner cities are in. Mothers and children trapped in poverty in our inner cities, rusted out factories scattered like tombstones across the landscape of our nation,
3: an education system flush with cash but which leaves our young and beautiful students deprived of all knowledge
2: And not only that he goes on, you know the crime if this the crime's not bad enough the Carnage. I mean, is he talking about Aleppo? And the crime, and the gangs, and the drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. This American carnage stops right here and stops
1: right now. Uh. Uh, I mean, what, That's, is, you, you, what is he talking about? You hit the yeah. nail on the head. That's an America I don't recognize. No. And no. I, I'm hardly one of these people that just lives That's, inside of a bubble and inside the beltway, and neither are you. We get out there, we see a lot of different areas. We get out into a lot of different cities. He hasn't seen I mean, this is oh. the most sheltered guy to ever run for president. I travel
2: a lot around this country. I, I don't recognize that America. And by the way, not, not to say that we don't have some problems. We do. And not to say there's not some crime. But crime is way down. We're always going right. to have some problems. Yeah. Yeah. But the idea to paint America uh, that way, uh, th- th- that that badly, is just, um, it's just not true. It's just rusted
1: something. out factories
2: yeah, yeah. Right. scattered like tombstones yeah. across the right. landscape. I mean, come on. Yeah, exactly. Right. And by the way. He also, of course, you know, he. The thing about it is, he talked down to people. It was like talking to schoolchildren, and he has that perpetual scowl on his face. I didn't. There was not one smile during the whole time. It was eighteen minutes long. Not one smile. It's just like he, he stares at. Uh, I, I, by the way, have you seen the official portrait they put out? The <laughs> official portrait of Donald Trump that's going to be hanging in the post office. It'll scare the bejesus out of kids. It is the ugly, ugliest, ugliest look on his face, like, I hate all of you. Mm, okay? Well, that's how he looked like during 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 his speech. Um, that perpetual scale, talking down to people, no un- uplifting message again, no words of unity. And they also trashed everybody on that platform when he said, remember, politicians, all these politicians, Washington has had it good, these politicians have had it good, they're all talk and no action. I mean, he he <laughs> He trashed not only every Democrat and every Republican yeah. on that platform. All of them. That, right. Just took a swipe at the whole. No, again, no recognition of uh, we may disagree, but we got to thank President Obama for his hard work for the last eight years or nothing like that. No recognition in that speech of Hillary Clinton sitting right there on the – who who had the grace to come – to that inauguration when a lot of people thought she should have stayed away after the things he said about her. Remember, on day one, he was going to lock her up, and she still agrees to come to his inauguration. He didn't even recognize her on the platform. It was it was a disgusting appearance, I thought. Uh,
1: that, to me, the, the, his speech, my biggest takeaway was, Everybody's screwed. Everybody up there that was patting him on the back and grinning. Paul Ryan with that big S-eating grin on his face the whole time. Paul Ryan is just as screwed as Nancy Pelosi under a Trump administration. He's going to pit his people against uh, folks like Paul Ryan, Roy Blunt, who was up there the whole time, as as hard as he is against Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. I got to tell you, I know
2: they must have been cringing because they thought, oh, my God, what do we have? And I'll tell you one other thing, of course, he cannot resist saying this. And he said it before and he said it again, bragging up there that this is a movement, historic movement, he called it, quote unquote, historic movement, the likes of which the world has never seen before. So women's suffrage movement, civil rights movement. No, no, no. All of that. No, but that, that, that's nothing compared to the movement behind Donald Trump which again is just a great big fat why we talked about it the other day this guy's got some penis envy problem everything about him has to be the greatest ever and we'll get to some more lies in just a second the greatest ever 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 it was uh, it's and yeah <laughs> and the sniffing
1: was back and the sniffing
2: yeah <laughs> boy god that's uh, gross it was it was really <laughs> gross uh so much for the speech uh And then, whatever, they did the lunch, he went out to the balls, they went bowling in the White House, but the great fun came the next day. And I have to tell you, I hope wherever you are that you had a chance to participate in one of the many, many marches. There were six marches in 600 different locations on the planet, most of them, of course, here in the United States yesterday. Uh, and the biggest, by far, was here in Washington, D.C. I was out there with all of my family. We had 14 people camping overnight at our house for two nights to take part in the march, all from California. And uh, Peter was there with his son. I saw Melanie Sloan there. Oh, nice. I mean, I kept running into people. John Kerry was in the crowd. Yeah. Madonna was in the crowd. I mean, it was it was incredible. And clearly, let me say as a fact, fact, not an alternative fact, fact, there were more people at the march on Saturday than there were at Donald Trump's inauguration on Friday. And it was a joyous occasion by, the way, by a lot, by a lot. People were in such a great mood. And here in Washington, at least, they organized it so late and doing it the day after the inauguration, they were not able to have the stage where everybody could see it. They didn't have the great big speakers so you could hear the speeches. It didn't matter, people were just having a great time. And here on Capitol Hill, where we broadcast from and where we live, there were throngs of people pouring down the street from where they parked the buses at RFK Stadium. As late as like one or two o'clock, they were still pouring in. It was incredible. And the the people were so happy and so friendly, everybody hugging everybody. And the signs. The signs were hilarious. They were I mean, great. They were so – you know, I've been to a lot of rallies, uh, like anti-Vietnam War rallies, marches and all that stuff in my life. And I've been to a lot of Tea Party rallies. I've been to rallies on the other side just as a reporter. No. The left is much more creative when it comes to signs. <laughs> they were such fun, right? Uh, I also that <laughs> said, my hemorrhoid could get elected president. <laughs> But the other one, there, there were several signs that said free Melania. Yeah, I saw that. They were, yeah, oh, yeah I loved it, yeah. I saw one I that know. said
1: uh, Tiffany blink twice if you need help <laughs> for <laughs> Tiffany Trump.
2: There were some great signs. No, they really were. And the, the, the spirit, you know what I thought, and it was people were really positive. And this started, remember, this started from a retired lady in Hawaii who just thought, We have to do something. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a little march the next day? And she sent that Facebook out on Facebook to 40 friends of hers. And the next morning, she had 10,000 people who said, I want to go. I want to go. And a million people showed up here in Washington, D.C. It was incredible. It was so much fun. By the way, and a sea of pussy hats.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of pussy hats. Uh,
2: Our entire crowd had them uh And uh, there were some women in washington in, in California who didn't come uh from where we the, from West Marin where we live in California, but who knit about forty pussy hats and sent them back with the crowd so uh it was uh it was in, in incredible uh someone over the weekend sent me um a reminder a little reminder but uh HL Mencken, the sage of Baltimore wrote back in night- July of 1920 we have used this quote on the show before it's worth bringing up again today as we welcome uh, Igor Volsky to our uh, studio deputy director of the Center for American Progress action fund hello igor
3: good morning good to be here on a good monday to see you. Hi, igor. starting off the week nice so to see you. Th- thank you
2: think about this uh almost uh Hundred years ago, almost a hundred years ago, yeah. H. L. Mencken wrote, quote, "As democracy is perfected, the office of the president represents more and more closely the inner soul of the people. On some great and glorious day, the plain folks of the land will reach their heart's desire at last, and the White House will be occupied by a downright fool and complete narcissistic moron."
3: <laughs> oh,
1: <laughs> wow,
2: Mom. boy. Where does the progressive movement go from here? It got off to a, an incredible start on Saturday with the Women's March here in Washington and in many, many cities around, around the country. I mean, there is an energy there. There's a power there that is um, – I mean, I've never seen anything like it, maybe since the days of uh, the protests against the Vietnam War. Yeah. The American people taken to the streets and willing to take to the streets. So now you've got to harness that energy and direct it.
1: Where?
3: Yeah, that's that's the great challenge is where you direct it and how how you direct it. Um, one of the one of the big successes that we've seen uh, on January first was when the House Republicans tried to yep. gut their own ethics watchdog, and you really had a wave of Americans outrage that, A, they were gutting ethics, B, they were doing this on a national holiday, and C, almost literally under the cover of night, there was a secret vote, and so people don't know who voted. And so they got a wave of calls, um, members did, which really overwhelmed them and shocked them. You also had, you know, president like Trump then call um, uh, on Twitter, call them out and say, let's not do this now, maybe later. Um, But, you know, it's, it's finding opportunities and moments like that where you could really energize people by getting them to call their member, by getting them to do something creative online, or getting them to do something creative on the ground that would garner a press conference, but also a press conference, press attention, but also... It's getting the right messengers, because if we learned one thing about Trump during the campaign trail, on the campaign trail, when certain kinds of people challenged him, like Kaiser Khan at the convention, for instance, or uh, after the carrier deal, when that union Oh, yeah. yeah. challenge him. That's what really got under his skin. And that's what really ruffled his feathers. And that's what really kind well, of made, made him go all kinds well, of I mean, crazy.
2: Anybody who criticizes him gets under his skin. Meryl Streep, you know.
3: <laughs> Meryl <laughs> Streep. Uh, right.
2: Um, Peter, you mentioned earlier uh, that at, on your point, at womensmarch.com. Yeah. You might do that again. So the march
1: was the beginning. The next step is 10 days of, or 10 things you could do in the first 100 days. They're actionable steps. First one is send a postcard to your senator. And they have details at womensmarch.com. They have downloadable postcards you can download, print up, put what you want on them, and send them out so that people hear you. And that's, I think, really important. Because I, I was having this conversation with somebody when I after I'd gone to the march, and they said, you know, the marches, marches like that don't really do anything. What really work, or you know, letting your elected officials know, uh, or giving money to candidates who will beat the bad guys, right? Which I disagree with, and I think that the point is it, that many people came out to say it's okay to say that this guy is not our guy. And there have got to be people out there who go like, you know, I've been a Republican for a long time and I just, I got to stick with my party. But if you see that many people come out and you see that type of resistance in the streets who are willing to show up and put their faces on TV and the newspaper and all that, right, then it's okay. More people could come forward and more people could say, I can't vote for this guy. I can't vote for these policies again. And that's why I think it's so important there has to be an effort to keep that movement
2: alive and keep it going and I I, I want to look at these ten steps uh, the rest of them and see Uh, but at least somebody's thinking in that direction it would be a waste just to have a one day march and then forget about it gotta follow up no It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Uh, David Daly joins us. He is former editor-in-chief of Salon. He's been in before to talk about his new book called Rat Eft, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. Hey, David. Good to
4: see you. Good morning. Thanks for having me back, Bill.
2: All right. I want to ask you a kind of um, an off-the-wall question. Sure. First, which is so there's a big race for the new chair of the Democratic Party, which right. relates to what I want you know what you've written about and how the Democratic Party rebounds. Um, I attended a, a debate last week at George Washington University uh, with all seven candidates. We're trying to get them all in studio so far. Three: Ray Buckley and um, uh, Pete uh, Buddha Judge. Buddha Judge, sorry, Buddha Judge and Sally Boynton Brown. Sally Boynton Brown have been in. Uh, We hope Keith Ellison and Tom Perez will be in. We've invited them all. Uh, So the Women's March on Saturday. Women's great Women's March. I would think that all of those candidates would be there to show that they identify with the grassroots and with the people. Instead, they all went down to Florida for a big meeting with high-roller Democratic donors.
4: Why? Well, I think this sums up the big problem that the Democratic Party has. They are so far behind at the state level, and they keep getting beaten election after election because they do not understand the fundamental problem they have got to show up for these knife fights with something more than a speech about civics and they've got to stop simply raising money because raising all of this money in these districts with these lines that you cannot win on is a losing losing game and they keep running the same races every single time what you saw in 2016 even in states like North Carolina and Wisconsin states where there are hot button issues, states where there are activists in the street that the Democrats could not even find candidates in a lot of these races. In North Carolina, 57 of 120 state house seats went not contested by a major party. Whoa, 49 really? of 99 assembly seats in Wisconsin. There is an organizing problem, there is a candidate problem. And the Democrats are still lining up for big dollars. It's not the way forward.
2: And I must tell you, last Tuesday night at George Washington University, every one of those candidates got up, and all they talked about was we need to totally change, which I agree with their language. Totally, you know, from top to bottom, Democratic Party needs to be you know shaken up, re or new priorities, uh, focus on. State races, governors races. Focus on grassroots. Build a fifty, rebuild the fifty-state strategy. Get down and fight for the people, and get away from looking like the Republican Party, which is all we do is raise big money. And here's a test on Saturday. And where are they? Where are they with? are the, with a hundred. Probably I don't know how many were there. Maybe a hundred big donors in Florida instead of being with a million people on the
4: Washington Mall. All of this starts at the district level the statehouse level. And until the Democratic Party can make the basic connection between the problem we have with our district lines and the extreme nature of our politics, they are not going to be able to win anything. They have to be able to make the case that if you're in Ohio and you want an abortion after 10 weeks, the problem is gerrymandering. If, Mm -hmm. If you're in North Carolina And you're transgender and want to use a bathroom of your choice. The problem is gerrymandering. If you are in Michigan and Wisconsin and want collective bargaining rights, you don't have them because of gerrymandering. If you're in Flint and you want to drink water that is not toxic, gerrymandering is what gave you the emergency manager bill. We have to connect the civics to the extreme policy outcomes, and until that happens— Nothing changes.
2: All right. So draw that out for us just a little bit. What you're saying is that the key problem, right, are the district lines drawn for congressional districts, right? And also Uh,
4: state assembly districts. And also state assembly districts. Also, and they are drawn by. Well, in 41 of 50 states, the congressional districts are drawn by. The state house, but by. by legislatures, occasionally with input from governors. Right. How many? And the, forty-one out of. And forty-one of fifty. So, in, so nine states have some variety of a. Like California commission. has a. Exactly. Right. Arizona. Mm-hmm. And New Jersey, um, yeah, they work to varying d- d- degrees of efficiency. Okay. Um, but the state house lines, and state senate lines tend to be drawn in most states by the legislatures themselves. Okay. Republicans realized this. I mean, it goes back to the, the beginning of the r- republic, oh, but right, yeah. the republicans recognize in 2010 that their way back to political power after Barack Obama routes them in 2008 and builds a supermajority in the Senate and and holds on to the House is through an aggressive redistricting strategy called Red Map mm-hmm. that they launch in 2010. They target state legislatures that draw state house lines. Carl Rove. Yes. They they target state legislatures. They flip chamber after chamber, even in blue and purple states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, uh, down into North Carolina, mm-hmm. out into Wisconsin. And then those state legislatures in two thousand and eleven, they disappear behind closed doors. They claim attorney client privilege for the the public's business And they go about with very advanced technology that has never been seen before at this level of micro-targeting to draw lines that the Republicans have locked in control at the state level and also at the congressional level. For the rest of the decade.
2: Right. So they do it every 10 years, every 10 years.: Based on the census uh, b- base, b- based exactly. on the census, right? 41 out of 50 states to state legislatures themselves. And while the Republicans had their red map and went out to elect Republicans to state legislatures and Republican governors so that they would be the ones who make the decisions in
4: 2011, what were the Democrats doing? They were sleeping. They they did. Uh, Karl Rove announces this strategy in the Wall Street Journal in March of 2010. He says... It wasn't a secret. It words. was not a secret. If you, if you read the op-ed page of the country's largest newspaper, you knew what the Republican plan was. He made it very clear. And he said, we are going into these small towns, and we are going to use redistricting as our road back. And he said, if we can flip 120 state... Legislative mm-hmm. seats. Right. Specifically in those states I mentioned, we will have the power to draw on our own 190 plus congressional seats. It worked exactly like that. So after the 2010 election, Republicans have complete control over the drawing of 193 of 435 seats, Democrats mm-hmm. have complete control over the drawing of 44
2: whoa whoa and you wonder why we are where we are Sarah Wheaton who covers of the White House for Politico joining us in studio hi Sarah uh, it's going to be an interesting four years huh
0: it sure is I was uh, I was in the briefing room were you on there Saturday? on Saturday oh wow yes. no, right. so
2: tell <laughs> us about the, the the tone and the message
0: well, he came out. We were waiting to uh, hear the Trump White House's response to the protest. We want to write fair and balanced stories, and we can't do that if, uh, if he doesn't make his own case. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we assembled, um, uh, did, waiting for the statement. They said that maybe there would be questions, maybe not. Um, and we sat there, started pretty late.
2: Did he, they call a, an official briefing?
0: They said it would be a, an on camera statement. Yeah, mm-hmm. so um, we we showed up and sat in the briefing room for a while, yeah. and he came out and delivered his diatribe and refused to take any questions.
2: And the, and the message was this is this was the largest thing period ever 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 right, and that the the media had been dishonest in reporting otherwise
0: and shameful. For oh, and for diminishing enthusiasm about the inauguration, um and uh, his sort of final message was that um, we've we in the media have been talking a lot about the need to hold the Trump administration accountable, and mm-hmm. he said that the Trump administration would be holding the media accountable, and that was what he was doing
2: when he left the room, what was the response for the people who were sitting there?
0: We, we, it's safe to say we were pretty unhappy and, and in shock. We shouted questions at, at him as he left, because um, he still hadn't really made any statement about the protest. He'd said that oh, that we, yeah. couldn't, we couldn't count the number of people in the protest just as we couldn't accurately count the number of people at the inauguration. And that was the only reference he had made. And so we're still trying mm-hmm. to learn about that. We're still trying to figure out exactly what his Obamacare executive order means. Um, There were a lot of things we wanted to know. And instead, many of us felt like we were props in sort of a political propaganda effort because we had been summoned essentially to be scolded. And that's not what that briefing room is for. If somebody wants to make come out and make a statement without taking questions, the president can get away with that. The press secretary cannot get away with that. If he wants to talk without taking questions, he can shoot a YouTube video. He can put out a press release. Yeah, right. But assembling us to physically be there and not taking questions, um, I don't think he'll be able to get away with that again.
2: Do you think the White House Correspondents Association will uh, lodge an official protest? I, I did see that Jeff Mason, the president, stated that he thought it was uh, not, the, the right, certainly not the right approach, was very unhappy Was surprised.
0: Right, I think that that the WHCA is a great organization, and, and I have full confidence in Jeff Mason, the head of it. Um, I don't know how much uh, state, you know, sort of issuing formal protest letters, but the, the power that we in the press have is we can say, we are not going to be physically present um, in the mm-hmm. briefing room if you're not going to take our questions. CNN also chose not to broadcast the statement live. They taped mm-hmm. it and then kind of showed what they wanted with context. Um, uh, Donald, President Trump is somebody who um, is very good at, at uh, using the news cycle, and he is good at s- putting a good show on before the cameras. Uh, but uh, we, the gatekeeper power of the White House press corps is more important than ever.
2: Now, it was reported, reportedly, but some of the former press secretaries have said clearly, Sean Spicer was told to go out and deliver this message. But then it was also a report that... That Donald Trump felt that he went too far. What's that based on?
0: Well, we this this happened during the campaign. You know, it was like on one hand he's mad at Kellyanne Conway for um, uh, yeah for going too far, and another mm-hmm. and, and another when she um, was talking about uh, criticism of. The potential Giuliani pick for a cabinet Mm -hmm. post. Yeah. So some reports said that um, that he was mad at her. Other reports just said that um, he told her to go and sort of voice the grassroots opposition to Giuliani. So I think I think this type of thing, um, this this sort of palace intrigue, you know, is is we're just going to have to get used to mixed signals on that Mm -hmm. um, in this White House.
1: I think that the 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 relationship between the White House and the press for for a while has been um, collegial. I I don't mean to say that in a negative way, not like buddy-buddy, but there's been like a mutual respect, right? Even though uh, George W. Bush might have sort of spun the press into war, um, there was still sort of a mutual respect. Like, that's just part of the game. I think a lot of people look at what President Obama did and I think didn't allow great press access uh, under the Obama White House, which I know, Bill, you've talked about a lot. But this is just completely different territory. This is
2: open hostility. And so. Wouldn't you say, right?
0: Well, here's sort of the irony. So I was in the White House all day Friday and all day Saturday. Uh, The press team is. Perfectly polite and even mm. quasi helpful behind the scenes. Really? Uh, yeah. You know, they kept us up to date about what they were doing. They're still kind of working out some scheduling kinks, yeah. but yeah. you know, the Obama White House continued to have scheduling yeah, kinks throughout. Right. Um, um, they their guidance has been relatively accurate. Like uh, uh, Spicer and mm-hmm. Hope Hicks um, told us on Friday that Trump was still deciding whether he wanted to issue some executive orders on Friday, but if he did not issue them on Friday, then there would be. Be no executive orders all weekend and they wouldn't come until Monday. All weekend, we were kind of hearing behind-the-scenes rumors that an executive order was coming on Saturday or Sunday. Well, nope, that guidance turned out to be right. We have yeah. not had any executive orders yeah. since yeah. Friday. And
2: we there will be one today on mm-hmm. TPP. We've mm-hmm. been uh, uh, reported this morning. So.
0: Yeah, we've heard lots of, of, of Monday stuff. Okay. And so, um, you know, they and they worked hard to kind of get their email mm-hmm. system up and running to send out the pool reports. They And those have looked increasingly professional. They initially were going to not let press into uh, – the prayer service on Saturday which was on TV and we wow. kind of pointed out that that was that that was silly and so they they worked hard to to get us in or they claimed they worked hard to get us in there and they sort of bragged that they had um, gotten us a better camera shot than there had been for the prayer service in the past so they're 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 polite and pleasant behind the scenes i think that was the <laughs> yeah. that was the other reason that um, especially maybe those of us who haven't covered the trump campaign throughout um, were we're pretty taken aback by by the tone but well,
2: then the president went out to the CIA, uh, and rather than what people thought that he might do is pay tribute to the men and women, and the fallen heroes behind him, he went into again this meandering diatribe against the media and saying these are the most dishonest human beings on on on, on the on the planet. Right? Um, again, like it's almost like open warfare on the media, which was we must say a centerpiece of his campaign, but. In the White House,
0: well, he did. He, I think, he literally used the word "war" on the media yeah, um, yeah. A, in the CIA speech. And I a was running um, <laughs> war, a
2: running war on <laughs> yeah. the media.
0: Yeah, I was talking to one um, intelligence community source of mine because uh, the so we we heard during that speech the people in the audience cheering. And times that I've covered speeches at Langley, um, the crowd is very staid. Um, but the, but my intel community source told me, um, especially with rank and file um, uh, CIA agents. Um, Bashing the media is actually a pretty good way to um, to show common cause with them because, you know, we're all about leaks. They're all about secrecy. Um, Mm -hmm. We uh, uh, news organizations have referred to um, techniques as torture. Um, So uh, that might actually have been um, for that audience uh, a politically astute move on Trump's part. I don't know if that's why he did it, but that might actually um, have worked for him.
2: Right. So in response to this, again, I I keep coming back. I I mean, I'm struggling with how we handle this as you are, as I think we all are, right? Um, Kellyanne Conway says, well, you just have to accept that you give your version of the facts and we give our version of the facts, which are alternative facts, she called it.
0: I mean, this is... Nuts! Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was doing dishes when, while well, I'm kind of <laughs> listening to Meet the Press when she said that, and I almost <laughs> dropped the dishes. I mean, uh, you know, George Orwell <laughs> like, must be, you know, either chuckling or spinning in his grave. Um, uh, but that is the thing. They there they, are facts,
2: and there are facts. Right? I mean, there are facts, mm-hmm. and then. There are non-facts, but there are facts. There are
0: alternative facts, you know—alternative medicine, alt-right, whatever. You just you just pick what works for you. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, there there you can live in an alternate reality, but there is a reality, and this is this is what I will be curious to see going forward. Is um, there's still going to be a narrow part of Trump's base um, that? Uh, That hates the media writ large and and is eager to believe these alternative facts. But, you know, as we saw with the march and the inauguration, it's like you can pretend that that more people showed up to the inauguration than the protest march. That's not the reality. And that's not the political reality. And we are starting to see other politicians. Care about the political reality. We saw John McCain on one of the Sunday shows, you know, go out of his way to um, acknowledge the march and say this is something that we need to pay attention to. Um, Granted, John McCain is not a big Donald Trump fan, but John McCain is also a fan of keeping his job. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how um, other Republicans respond. Um, uh, You know, Republicans in general are not not big fans of the mainstream media either but but uh they do tend to live in the reality-based community so um we'll see what happens
1: there's one thing that i keep holding on to uh one hope i keep holding on to in the sense that you know telling lies is not something that donald trump hasn't done right like he told lies all throughout the campaign um and i don't think that People held him accountable, as accountable as, as as they should have on that front. But now he's in power, and that's something completely different. Um, and the Spicer thing on Saturday, I think, was such a big deal because this isn't a campaign anymore. This isn't uh, saving face. This is just lying for the sake of lying. And people are going to probably, or my hope is, are going to start to question, if they're going to lie about this... What won't they lie about? And we do live in a society that likes to build people up and then tear them down. And I think that now that he has won, I think that there will be uh, a, a change of holding him accountable and saying, okay, now we need to tear this guy down. And that's my only hope, is that people actually start to treat him like a real politician or a real public figure as opposed to just some celebrity who can skate by on these things. The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This is The Bill Press Show.
2: Well, for weeks, we've been wondering what Donald Trump wants from the White House press corps. And now we know he wants us to lie, just like him and just like Press Secretary Sean Spicer. Yeah, they say that last Friday was the biggest crowd ever seen at any presidential inauguration in history. That's a lie. They say a million and a half people turned out for Donald Trump's inauguration. That's a lie. They say there were a record number of people on the Washington, D.C. metro. That's a lie. They say this was the first time that white plastic panels were placed on the mall so you could spot empty spaces from the air. That's a lie. They say that aerial shots of the mall were deliberately doctored to make the crowd look smaller. That's a lie. They say security arrangements were tightened this year for the first time, which explains why there were so many empty bleachers near the White House. That's a lie. They say the media invented Donald Trump's war with the CIA. That's a lie. And they say that Donald Trump's been on the cover of Time magazine 15 times. That's also a lie. And then any reporter who dares say anything different, any reporter who dares tell the truth, Donald Trump calls them among the most dishonest human beings on earth. Well, let me tell you this. As a member of the White House Press Corps, I refuse to lie for Donald Trump. I will continue to tell the truth about Donald Trump, just like I told the truth about Barack Obama. And if that makes me dishonest, if telling the truth makes me dishonest, well, then I'm happy to be dishonest. This is The Bill Press Show.